Section 10 of Astounding Stories 15, March 1931. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Astounding Stories 15, March 1931, by Various. Beyond the Vanishing Point, by Ray Cummings. Chapter 7 Within the Golden Cage. The trees around us expanded to towering forest giants. The underbrush rose up over our heads. We had taken only a taste of the diminishing drug. Glora showed us how to touch it to our tongue several times to adjust our size as we became smaller. It was no more than a minute of diminishing. We could hear the roar of the crowd and Poulter's voice shouting. We ran forward through the great forest. It was a fair distance out to the starlit road. We saw it as a wide shining esplanade. The people now were giants twice our height. Poulter, himself towering with a seeming fifty-foot stature, was standing by the gigantic canopy of the dock. He had dispersed the crowd. There was an open space on the esplanade, a run for us of about a hundred feet. "'We've got to chance it,' I murmured. "'Make a run of it, now!' We darted across. In the confusion, with all eyes centered on Poulter, we escaped discovery. It was dim under the dock canopy. Poulter had backed from the road and was walking to the barge. It lay like the length of an ocean liner, its sail looming an enormous spread above it. The gunwale was level with the dock floor. A dozen or more fifty-foot men were greeting Poulter. They were amidships. I realize now that in those moments as we scurried aboard like wharf-rats we took wild chances. We made for the stern which momentarily was unoccupied. To Poulter and his men we were eight or nine inches tall. We dropped over the gunwale, slid down the convex thirty or forty-foot incline of the interior, and landed on the bottom of the boat. There were many places where we could safely hide. A litter of gigantic rope-strands was around us. We could see the bottom of a cross-bench looming overhead, and the great curving sides of the vessel with the gunwales outlined against the starlight. The boat left the dock in a moment. The sail bellied out enormous over us. Ten feet forward from us the towering figure of a man sat on a bench with the steering mechanism before him. Further on the other men were dispersed, with one or two in the distant bow. Poulter reclined on a cushioned couch amidships. Looking along the dark, widely level bottom of the boat, there were only the feet and legs of the men visible. Alan whispered, "'Let's get closer.' We were insects, soundlessly scuttling unnoticed in the dimness. And it was noisy down here, the clank of the steering mechanism, the swish and surge of the water against the hull, the voices of the men. We passed the boots of the seated helmsman, and found another hiding-place nearer Poulter we could see his giant length plainly. None of the other men were near him. He was reclining on an elbow, stretched at ease on the cushion. And at the moment he was fumbling with the chains that fastened the little golden cage to his chest. The cage was double its former size to us now. A shaft of pale light came down, reflected from the great sail surface overhead. It struck the bars of the cage. We could see a small figure in there. Babs. Then we heard Poulter's voice. "'I will let you out, Babs. You will come out, sit on my hand, and talk to me. That will be nice. We will have a little time.' 
he unfastened the cage and put it on the cushion beside him. He was still propped up on one elbow. "'I will let you out now. Be careful, Babs.' My heart was almost smothering me. "'Alan, we've got to get still closer. Try something. Get large, shall we?' Alan whispered tensely, "'I don't know. Oh, I don't know what to do. This thing—' This thing was so strange. "'We can get closer,' Glora whispered, "'but never larger, not here. They would discover us too soon.' We crept forward. We reached the edge of the cushion. Its top surface was a trifle lower than our heads, a billowing, wrinkled mass of fabric. But I saw that the folds of it were rough enough to afford a foothold. I thought that I could climb it. We stood erect. There was a deep shadow along here, but it was brighter on the cushion top. We could see over its edge, an undulating spread of surface with the giant length of Poulter stretched there. The cage was nearer to us. Poulter's great fingers fumbled with it. A door in the lattice bars flipped open. "'Careful, my babs!' His voice was a throaty, rumbling roar from above us. "'Careful! I do not want you to be hurt!' From the little doorway came the figure of Babs. The starlight glowed on her long blue dress. Her black hair was tumbling over her shoulders. Her face was pale, but she was unhurt. "'Babs! I think that I had never loved her so much as at that moment.' nor ever seen her so beautiful as in that miniature, standing at the door of her golden cage, bravely facing the monstrous, misshapen figure of her captor. We heard her small voice. "'What do you want me to do?' "'Stand quiet. Now I put my hand for you.' His monstrous hand bristled with a thatch of heavy black hair. He brought it carefully sliding along the cushion. Babs was barely the length of one of its finger-joints. She climbed upon its palm. "'That is right, Babs. Now I bring you. Hold tight to my finger. Here, I crook the little one. Fling your arms around it.' With a swoop his hand took her aloft and away. Then we saw her, twenty feet or so in the air, still on his hand as he held it near his face. "'Now we have a little talk, Babs. When we get to the island I put you back in your cage.' I had a sudden flash of realization. Something I could do. I did not plan it. I know now my judgment was bad. I recall it struck me that Alan would want to do it also, and perhaps even Glora. That would not work. My chances, however desperate, were better alone. And Glora and Alan, in our present size, could doubtless disembark safely. Glora knew the layout of the island. She could follow Poulter. Alan and Glora were standing beside me, peering over that billowing cushion spread toward the distant giant palm with Babs standing upon it. I gripped Alan's shoulder. "'See here, Alan,' I whispered vehemently. "'Whatever happens, we must follow Poulter. Glora knows the way. Some chance will come. What we want is an opportunity to get large without discovery. Then rush Poulter.' Alan's white face turned to me. "'Yes, that's what we're planning.' But George, here on this boat, of course, can't do it here. Tell Glora, be sure and follow Poulter. Whatever happens, you think of nothing else. You won't, will you? George, what? We've got to make some opportunity. I was trembling inside, fearful that Alan would be suspicious of me. 
yet I had to make sure that he and Glora would stay as close to Poulter as possible. Yes, Alan agreed. Listen to them. Poulter was talking to Babs, but I did not hear the words. I moved a trifle away. Rash decision. I hardly decided anything. There was only the vision of Babs before me, my love for her, and my desperate need of doing something, getting to her, seeing her, being with her, having her near my own size again, as though blessed normality of that would rationalize and lessen her danger. If only I had been less rash! If only back there in that tunnel I had stopped to see what it was my foot kicked against! I slid away. Alan and Gloria did not notice. They were whispering together and gazing over the cushion at Babs. In the floor shadow I moved some ten feet. On the undulating top of the cushion the little golden cage stood with its lattice door open. It was only a few feet from my face. I fumbled at my belt for the diminishing vial. I found one pellet left. Well, that would be enough. I was hurried. Alan might discover me. Poulter might move, put Babs in the cage and close its door. We might be near the island already, and the confusion, the activity of disembarking, would defeat me. A thousand things might happen. I touched the pellet to my tongue. In a few seconds the drug action had come and passed. The cushion top loomed well over my head. The side was a ridged, indescribably unnatural vista of cliff wall. The fabric was coarse with hairy strands, dented into little ravines and crevices. I climbed. I came panting to the pillow surface. The golden cage was six or eight feet away and was now two feet high. Again I touched the drug to my tongue, held it an instant. The cage drew away, grew to a normal six-foot height, then larger until in a moment it stopped. I stood peering at it, trying to gauge its size in relation to me. I wanted so intensely now to be normal to Babs. The cage seemed about ten feet high, a little less probably. I barely tasted the pellet and replaced it carefully in the vial. I could only hope its efficacy would be preserved. I had to chance that I would not be seen now crossing this billowy expanse. I ran. The rope strands of the fabric now had spaces between their curving surfaces. The cage was a shining golden house, set on this wide, rolling area. Far in the distance there was a blur, Poulter's reclining body. I reached the cage. It was a room about ten feet square and equally as high walled solid, top and bottom, and on three sides. The front was a lattice of bars, with a narrow six-foot-high doorway standing open now. I dashed in. The interior was not wholly bare. There was a metal-wrought couch fastened to the wall, with a railing around it and handles. It suggested a ship's bunk. There was a railing at convenient height all around the wall. I sought a hiding-place. I saw just one, under the couch. It was secluded enough. There was a grill-like lattice extending down from the seat to the floor. I squeezed under one end and lay wedged behind the grill. How much time passed I do not know. My thoughts were racing. Babs would be coming. I heard the distant approaching rumble of Poulter's voice. Through the grill I could see across the floor of the ten-foot cage to the front lattice bars. Outside there appeared a huge, pink-white mottled blob. Poulter's hand, a ridged and pitted surface with great bristling black stalks of hair. The figure of Babs came through the cage doorway. 
in blessed normality, the same slim little babs who always stood, since we were both matured, with her head about level with my shoulders. The lattice door swung shut with a reverberating metallic clank. Babs stood tense, clinging to the wall railing. I heard the blurred rumble of Poulter's voice. "'Hold tightly, my little Babs!' The room lurched, went upward and sidewise with a wild, dizzying swoop. Babs clung, and I was wedged prone under the couch. Then the movement stopped. There was a jolting, rocking, and outside I heard the clank of metal. Poulter was fastening the chains of the cage to his chest. A white-reflected glow now came through the bars. It was starlight reflected from Poulter's shirt-bosom. An abyss of distance was outside. I could see nothing but the white glow. Momentarily there was very little movement to the room. Only the rhythmic sway of Poulter's breathing and an occasional jolt as he shifted position. The floor was tilted at a sharp angle. Babs came toward the couch, pulling herself along the wall railing. I called softly, "'Babs! Babs, dear!' She stopped. I called again, "'Babs!' "'Don't cry out. It's George. Here. Stand still.' She gave a little cry. "'George, where are you? I don't—' I slid out from my concealment and stood up, holding to the railing. "'Babs, dear!' The blessed normality of sighs. She cried again. "'George!' You! George, dear!" She edged along the railing, a step or two down the tilting floor, then released her hold and flung herself into my waiting arms. "'I think we are landing. Hold the railing, George. When the room moves, it goes with a rush.' Babs laughed softly. It must have seemed to her, after being alone in here, that now our plight was far less desperate. She had told me how she was captured. A man accosted her on the terrace, saying he wanted to speak to her about Alan. Then a weapon threatened her. Amid all those people she was held up in old-fashioned style, hurried to a taxi-car, and whirled away. She was saying now, "'When Poulter moves, it is dizzying. You'll see.' "'I have already, Babs. Heavens, that swoop!' The room was more level now. We carefully drew ourselves to the front lattice. Poulter was standing, and we had the white sheen from his shirt-front. A sheer drop was outside the bars, but looking down I could see the outlines of his body with the huge spread of the boat interior underneath us. A confusion of rumbling voices sounded. Blurred giant shapes were outside. The room jolted and swayed as the boat landed and Poulter disembarked. Bab stood clinging to me. Blessed normality of size! We at least were normal this metal-barred room, Babs and I. But outside was the abnormality of largeness. I think that in relation to us the men were of over two hundred-foot stature, and the hunched polter a trifle less. It seemed, as he walked, that we were lurching at least a hundred and fifty feet above the ground. "'You had better hide,' Babs urged. "'He might stop and speak to someone. If anyone peered in here you would be seen. No chance, then, even to get across the room." It was true. But for a few moments I lingered, though I could distinguish vegetation on their flat rooftops as though flower-gardens were laid there. We passed a house with its hundred-foot oval windows all aglow with light. Music floated out, 
a distant blare of musical sounds, and the ribald laughter of giant voices. I had seen no women among these giants of the islands. But now a huge face was at one of the ovals. A dissolute, painted woman of earth, staring out at Poulter as he passed. It was like the enormous close-up image on a large motion picture screen. She shouted a ribald jest as he went by. "'George, please go back. Suppose she had seen you.' We ascended a hill. A distance ahead a great oblong building loomed like a giant's palace, which, indeed, it was. We headed for it, passed through a vast arching doorway into the greater dimness of an echoing interior. I scurried back across the lurching room and again wedged myself under the couch. Bab stood at the lattice ten feet away. We dared to talk in low tones. The rumbling voices and footsteps outside would make our tiny voices inaudible to Poulter. I was tense with my plans. I had told them to Babs. With the one partially used remaining pellet of the diminishing drug we could make ourselves small enough to walk out through the bars. Then my black vial of the enlarging chemicals, as yet unused, would take us up, out to our own world. We could not use the drugs now, but the chance might come when Poulter would set the cage on the ground, or somewhere so that we might climb down from it with a chance to hide and get large before we were discovered. I would fight our way upward. All I needed was a fair start in size. But I lay now with doubts assailing me. This was the first moment I had had for calm thoughts, though in truth they were far from calm. Where were Ellen and Glora? Following us now? I could only hope so. Once out of this, Babs and I would have to rejoin them. But how? A panic swept me. I should not have left them. Or at least I should have told them what I was trying and given Ellen a chance to plan. The panic grew upon me, the premonition of disaster. From my belt I took the opalescent vial with its one partly used pellet. I dumped the pellet out. It was spoiling. The former exposure of the air, the moisture of my tongue had ruined it. I had no need to guess at the catastrophe. As I held its crumbling, deliquescing fragments on my palm, it melted into vapor and was gone. We could not make ourselves smaller. We would have to wait now until Poulter opened the cage. But once outside, the enlarging drug would give us our chance to fight our way upward. My trembling fingers sought the black vial at my belt. It was not there. My mind flung back. In that tunnel something had dropped and I had kicked it. A cursed chance! My accursed, heedless stupidity! I had lost the black vial. We were helpless, caged, marooned here in a size microscopic. End of chapter 7